Would you open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1? 2 Timothy chapter 1. Dr. Carl Spackman was a pastor in Pennsylvania, did his doctoral work at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philly on the subject of passing on the Christian faith to your children. One thing he did in his doctoral work was to send out a questionnaire. Now, it's a little bit old. It was to Youth Congress, 1985. He surveyed 1,850 teenagers who were brought up in Christian homes, using that in the broad sense, Christian homes. And he asked them in this questionnaire, what is the number one reason for rejecting the faith among today's youth? Appeal of worldly attractions was number one. Hypocrites in the church was number two. Peer pressure from unbelievers was third. Strong attachment to non-Christian friends came in fourth. Poor Christian role models in my home, fifth. And Christian adults don't listen, they only lecture was number six. These top six reasons accounted for 77% of defections from the Christian faith according to these youth. Now, that was 33 years ago, but if you listen to them and think about it, I don't think too much has changed. What's striking to me is that most of these reasons point back to the mediocre job that Christian moms and dads are doing spiritually in the home. Dr. Spackman estimates that somewhere between 50 to 70% of the children brought up in the church, that's the broader definition of the church, reject the faith of their parents, 50 to 70%. And 93% of pastors and youth workers described faith rejection as either fairly serious or extremely serious of a problem for the church. Faith rejection is serious. It's serious because it means Christ rejection. It means heaven rejection. It means eternal life has been spurned. So this morning we're going to turn our attention toward the successes of one grandmother and one mother in the Bible who did pass on their Christian faith. And we're going to learn mothering principles that they live by, and hopefully we can apply it to mothers today. As we address motherhood this morning, I want to remind all of us that some people are called by God not to be mothers. And I don't just mean the men in here. (laughs) Some are called by God not to be mothers, but to remain single and to serve the Lord in their extra time and energy they can bring for the kingdom of God, or to serve the Lord as married without children. That is God's plan for some people. Being single or being married without children or with children now who are no longer in the home and can't be taught affords opportunities to advance the kingdom of God also. And that's an important part of the Holy Spirit's strategy where His priority is not so much our families. His priority is the family of God, the eternal family of God, the kingdom of God. And I would just add a little caveat before we get into the text here in 2 Timothy 1, that married people need to do well to remember not to look down on the status of singlehood. 
And definitely not every time you're talking to a single, ask them about whether they've met that special person or when are they going to get married or I saw you two together. Are you guys, you need to understand that for some that can be offensive and it's not needed. What you should be asking them about is they're following the purposes of God for their life. If the singles want you to be a matchmaker, they'll ask you for that. In other words, until then, value the place of singles in the body of Christ because their Lord values it. And, um, but here we are today to, to focus on and to value and to honor our mothers indeed. So open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to read verse 5, and then we're going to flip to chapter 3 in verses 14 and 15 because they speak of Timothy's upbringing and his mothering that uh, he, he had, a mother and a grandmother, and how they impacted his life. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5 And Paul's writing, he says, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, Timothy, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. Now go to chapter 3. He's talking about the Word of God. He's talking about the end times, but he comments on Timothy's upbringing, verses 14 and 15. He's talking about evil men increasing. And he says, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and particularly verse 15, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to that fantastic verse, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable. And so we learn a little something about Timothy in these three seemingly incidental verses in terms of what Paul is writing about in the letter of 2 Timothy. This is Paul's final letter before he is going to be executed. He's going to have his head chopped off as A Roman citizen, that was his right. He wasn't going to be crucified or be put to death in some other way. He's going to have his head chopped off by the emperor Nero. The date is somewhere around AD 67. uh, But in the midst of that, he, he gives us a couple of nuggets of effective mothering and grandmothering. In this illustration, we find the answer to some significant questions we have about motherhood. Questions we can apply, by the way, to spiritual mothering as well. We're going to talk about the need for spiritual mothering in the body of Christ as well. The three questions we're going to look at today is what is the purpose of motherhood? What is the practice of mothers? And then what are the privileges of mothers? The purpose of motherhood, what should be the practice of mothers, and what are the privileges of motherhood? Let's look first at the purpose of motherhood. Or put another way, What is a mother supposed to accomplish? What are you doing in all that labor that you do? Sure, you're caring for the children, but what is the purpose beyond all of that? The answer to the question is only hinted at in our text, but it coincides with other scriptures. Look again at chapter 1, verse 5. I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I'm sure it's it's in you as well. Now, I want to underscore that 2 Timothy is not a letter that was written to mothers. 
As the name of the letter indicates, the aged and experienced Apostle Paul was writing to the lead pastor at the church at Ephesus, namely Timothy. That's why it's called 2 Timothy. He was in the midst of an enormous spiritual battle, and he needed a lot of guidance. Paul was about to leave him. He needed to have a lot of understanding about how to carry on the ministry, and he also needed an awful lot of strengthening and encouragement just to get a feel for the kinds of exhortations that Paul urges in this letter. Look at chapter 1 and verse 14 just for a second. We're going to survey a couple of these. Paul writes to this pastor, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. As a pastor, you've had the gospel, you've had sound doctrine, you've had apostolic teaching that's come from Jesus Christ himself. It's been entrusted to you. Guard it, protect it. Don't let anyone corrupt it. Don't let anyone change it. And use the Holy Spirit in doing that. If you look at chapter 2 and verse 3, He is told, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Paul is in prison. He's writing. He's not suffering for doing anything wrong. He's suffering for preaching the gospel and making known Christ. And he's trying to tell Timothy Christian ministry and being a Christian in this world is hard. It's going to face opposition. And so you need to be ready to suffer as a Christian. While we're in chapter 2, look at verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Many people back then and now teach the word of God in a sloppy manner. They don't treat the word of God as precious and be careful with what is said about God. They go and flock to churches where pastors say all kinds of things that are popular and are humorous and are interesting, but they're not accurate with the words that come from God. He needed to be careful to handle God's word accurately. Now go to chapter 3 and verse 1. Paul says, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. So what does that mean? He goes on to list all of the sins that will happen in the end times, and he's basically telling Timothy, you need to be sober, you need to be spiritually prepared. Chapter 4, verse 2, it says, preach the word. That's his challenge, really, to Timothy. If all, the, all the letter, I think, builds up to verse 2. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Why? Verse 3, for the time will come when they, that is even the congregation that is before you, will not endure sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is hard to listen to. It demands things of others. And there'll be people who would much rather not hear sound doctrine. Begin to uh, make things lighter, make things more entertaining, and that's what will happen to people. That's generally what happens to people. That we'd have to be careful that doesn't happen to you. But, but Paul was told... Paul told Timothy, this is going to happen, and so you need to make sure that you're you're preaching God's Word when they want to hear it and even when they don't want to hear it. But even though there's all of this difficulty in ministry, there's a little bit of a ray of hope here, not only from the apostle himself, but going back to chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul is expressing confidence in Timothy because the same faith that was first in his grandmother Lois And in his mother Eunice is now showing up in this younger man, maybe in his 30s or 40s. And because that faith is in Timothy, then there's hope for that church that the gospel would continue to be preached and that they would respond positively to these kinds of exhortations that are given in 2 Timothy. 
In other words, Paul expressed some hope that Timothy would be true to God and would be a true man of God. So next, Paul bears testimony to the success of this grandmother and the success of this mother in their passing on the faith to the next generation, that is, to Timothy. And of course, understand that being Jewish, Paul knew the teachings about the family that were handed down from his forefathers. This is not the first time something would be mentioned about a godly believing family. In the law of God, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, parents, mothers, and fathers were to teach their children the law of God, and they were to do it diligently, it says there. Why? So their hearts would love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. In the book of Proverbs, it picks up on the theme of parenting. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8, it says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. There were many practical things to learn in the Proverbs, and Jewish parents were, were taught to, to bring that wisdom to bear on the next generation. The church age, nothing really has changed. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, it tells both parents that they are to bring up their, their children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. It's talking about children that are still at home because it tells them, obey your parents, and then says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. They're still being brought up. And so they are to obey their parents because they're there at home with their parents. Well, then, rather than pursuing this kind of a noble goal, that is bringing up children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, you would find many moms these days dedicated to just about everything else dedicated to giving their children all kinds of experiences and not caring so much about whether or not they follow the Lord, dedicated to taking care of their external looks, doing their hair, doing their nails, rather than being concerned about the spirituality of their own children, dedicated to shopping for glamorous items or surfing the internet or whatever their time is consumed with. They're busy, 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 but busy with all the things that are of much lesser importance. Rather, what we would like to see is someone in line with that. What does that look like? A youngster sitting upon the lap of a mother, the Bible open, and a mom trying to explain in a passionate and a caring and a patient way what the Word of God means to them. These are the days, rather, where mothers advertise their child's honor roll achievements more than their decisions to, to not elevate themselves, but to pursue a life of service for Jesus Christ, which gets no accolades in the world at all. You would find, rather than pursuing these goals, mothers these days letting their kids experiment with whatever it is, loose living, try this, try that, and it's all in the name of uh, letting their creativity come out and letting them find themselves. Rather, mothers are supposed to be guiding their children like a lighthouse saying, watch out for treacherous water. And so mothers, please listen to this. Your purpose should be what we read about with Lois and Eunice. Your purpose should be to do all that you can do to honor the Lord, your God, by the way that you live as you live for Christ, then lead your children to trust and follow Jesus Christ all the days of their life. That's your purpose. To honor Christ by leading your children to honor Him in all that they do and put their faith in Him. 
In particular, there are two characteristics of the faith that Paul mentions here that are helpful in serving the purpose of bringing them to faith. The first, obviously, is that it's a saving faith. Look again at chapter 3 and verse 15. It says that this faith that he's talking about, this faith in Jesus Christ that is developed from the Holy Scriptures leads to salvation. It grants wisdom that leads to salvation. In other words, she's using the Scriptures to help lead the young boy or the young man to salvation. In fact, if you look a little bit ahead in chapter 4 and verse 7, it indicates this kind of faith Paul is talking about is a faith that Paul had, and it's a faith that Paul kept all the way to the day of his death. He writes there, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. That's the faith that saves. It's not the kind of faith that James talks about in James chapter 2. We might even call it demonic faith or demon faith. Because that's a faith where someone could confess that God is real, that there is one God, but it never changes their life. It's not the kind of faith that leads them to turn away from a life of sin and to turn to follow God with all of their heart. That's a faith that doesn't save anybody. And there are lots of people in lots of different kinds of churches that have a faith in God that does not save the soul. And children need to be saved. Children need to be saved because they're not born with a good nature. They're born, as Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 says, with a sin nature, with a nature of wrath, with a nature that does not have a tendency to want to submit their lives to what God tells them to do. They're born rebels against the will of God. And so they need to be saved. You know, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 31 says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. A lot of people try to push God out of their mind, and so they don't have the terror of God on them. They don't have the fear of God in their life. They have to bring God back into the picture and understand that God does not accept sinful humanity. And so it's the responsibility of mothers to be able to understand that truth and lead their little ones into the fear of God where they're willing to put aside their own will and follow Christ. That's the kind of faith that saves a soul. God is a a terrifying God, but He's also a loving God, a God of mercy. And God gave children a mother and a father in the context of a good gospel-preaching church to learn and to lead them to that sweet and precious knowledge of Jesus Christ. Don't you love the Lord Jesus Christ yourself? Don't you know how precious and sweet that he is? Don't you know how he guides your life, how he fills your heart with hope, how he gives you wisdom so you can see past all the folly of the world? That's what you want for your children. It's not just a ticket out of hell, which, by the way, is good enough reason to come to Christ. But it's much more than that. It is learning all of the precious things that people that are not saved cannot see and cannot experience and can never thrill their souls. You want that for your children. Who cares if they make the honor roll if they don't have that? Who cares if they're, they're a great athlete but they're not, they don't have that? Who cares? The whole point is to bring them the knowledge of Christ. That's the purpose. God gave them birth in your family so you would lead them to birth in his family, see? 
Jesus adamantly stated that, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. Now, I know you're thinking, how can I ensure their salvation? Only God can save, and only God can give them the faith to believe. True enough, true enough. However, don't forget the flip side to that coin. God has chosen to use parents who faithfully love God to lead the little ones to him. Therefore, both mom and dad are responsible to do all that we can to point the little ones constantly to Christ, to intercede for them because they're going to make foolish decisions and pray, God, please overtake whatever's going on in their mind that sometimes we don't know and show them the light of truth that they may be drawn to that gorgeous light. My mom was saved when I was about 17 years old. And uh, I was a foolish young man. And she started to pray for me. Now, she wasn't discipled. She didn't even go to a church that taught much Bible, but she got saved and she started to pray for me. And I can tell you without any doubt at all in my mind that I'm here as a pastor because of her prayers. She interceded for this foolish man and I got saved because of her intercessions. If she was to look outwardly at me and say, Is Tommy sensitive to the things of the Spirit of God? Does he look like he has a lot of interest in the gospel? She wouldn't have seen anything in my life to give her any encouragement. But she didn't care about that. She prayed in faith, and so I got saved at a very unexpected time. That's how God works. It's his work. You pray for him to work, he works in his time and in his way. God has given moms and dads two powerful tools, prayer and the Word of God energized by the indwelling spirit whom he also gave to you to engage in spiritual warfare on behalf of your children whom hell's angels want to drag down to hell with him. It is an enormous task. It has eternal consequences. At times it's a scary battle, but it is a fight well worth fighting. And you are the one that needs to fight it the most. Now, in order for them to have a saving faith, it must also be a sincere faith. That's the second characteristic of this faith, a sincere faith. Look back again at chapter 1, verse 5. Paul writes to Timothy, I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you. That Greek word sincere, on hupokritos, literally without hypocrisy. In other words, it's genuine. There's no hidden motive. Their faith was from the heart. It had the right motives. A sincere faith should not be taken for granted. When someone says they believe in God or they're reading the Bible, that doesn't necessarily mean they have a sincere faith. It needs to be real. It needs to be true. There are lots in the churches who believe in God for all the wrong reasons, particularly when it suits their purposes. Some believe in God just to please their family. Some preach Christ to get rich to get some benefit out of it, to fit in somehow and maneuver themselves into advancing their business. That's not saving or sincere faith. How many are those who call upon God when they're in trouble but will not give God the praise in their triumphs? How hypocritical is the man who says he serves God but he gets rich off of the church? A sincere faith is crucial in fact, Paul wrote in his first letter, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, 
that the goal of Paul's instruction was to produce, quote, love from a pure heart. If you want to know what you're doing when you're mothering and you're discipling, here it is. To produce love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. What a great motto. I want to see that in you. You should want to see that in your children. Love from a pure heart, a good conscience, meaning they're not hiding anything, and a sincere faith. A sincere faith is not like a man called Demas that Paul has to mention at the end of this letter in chapter 4, verse 10. He says, having loved this present world, Demas has deserted me. Paul needed his comfort and his help, and Demas decided, I don't want to serve this apostle anymore. There's no benefit in it for me in this life, and he deserted Paul. Why? Because he loved this present world. Wise mothers prove daily to their children why knowing Christ is so much better than any of the worldly attractions and benefits. Worldly attractions and non-Christian friends ultimately have appeal only when the children at home sense there's nothing powerful and nothing genuine going on in this home. When they're five and six and seven and eight, you don't see they're turning away from the faith yet. When they start to turn 10 and 11 and 12, you begin to see that. And then when they can start thinking for themselves in their teenage years, you see they're rejecting something that they've seen for some 10, 12 years already. They haven't seen anything genuine there call it teenage rebellion, but really it's just they have enough experience in your family to know there's nothing real sincere going on here. The joy of the Lord is not here. There's hypocrisy here. They've looked at it. They don't want it. But wise parents provide a a joyful, yes, a joyful, and a disciplined, and a warm environment. It's not all truth. It's not all mushy. It's truth and it's warmth together. They provide that. Why? To remove the appeal of foolish peer pressure, the foolishness of addictive fleshly habits that they turn to because their lives are, are, are cold and their lives are lonely. Children run from homes where there's hypocrisy. Children bolt from homes where there's a proud religious person quoting the Bible but not living it. They show little understanding of what the Bible means in their own mouth and in their own hands and in their own feet and in their own perspective. Remember what Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. They're washed on the outside, but what are they on the inside? You remember? They're filthy. They're dirty. Now, that's not to exonerate children who grew up in homes where parents were hypocrites. They still have to make their choice. You can grow up in a home where a parent is a hypocrite and you can choose the sincerity of Jesus Christ, yes? You can look at him and see he's sincere. You can never use that as an excuse when you stand before God. Well, my parents were drunkards. My parents were hypocrites. My parents didn't really believe in the Bible. My parents cussed all the time at home. You cannot use that as an excuse. God will hold you accountable for what you know. But it is to say this, that a A parent in the home who's not living in submission to the will of God is a stumbling block to their own children. And mothers, you need to evaluate that because you could be the greatest tool that Satan is using to lead your children to hell. Now, a second significant question about motherhood is what should be the practice of mothers? Well, we already got a hint at it. 
How is mothering to be accomplished? Well, in these verses and other scriptures, we find three strategies. I'm going to try to go through them quickly. Three strategies. First and primarily, your strategy is by example. Nothing can replace the example. Nothing. There is no, there's no technique. There's no three things to learn. If your example's not there, forget about it. Your example has to be true. Again, look at verse 5. Was, the faith was first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. Praise God for grandmothers, by the way. There's no saving and sincere faith to pass on to children unless it first dwells in you. Yes? You not only hurt yourself, you not only dishonor God, you hinder those little ones from coming to God because they watch you. You don't love your husband. You don't trust in God. You don't follow Scripture. You're bent on doing things your own way. But when you give up your own desires, when you see in the will of God the joy of your life, when you, when you finally give in and say, Lord, I want to follow you. You're so much wiser than me. Tell me your will. You then become a channel of God's love, a channel of God's wisdom, and, and a channel of God's protective holiness to watch over your children. Eunice and Lois came to faith in Jesus Christ when the Apostle Paul preached the gospel to them. They both lived in a town called Lystra, which was in the district of Lyconia in the Roman province of Galatia. That's modern-day Turkey. Lystra had Roman citizens, Greeks, and a few Jewish inhabitants. In Acts chapter 13 and 14, it explains that Paul fled to Lystra after his life was threatened in the town of Iconium. And there in Lystra, he preached Christ and a church was started. Two of the Jewish believers in that brand new church were Lois and Eunice. They heard how Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of the Messiah. They believed in the miraculous resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And Lois and Eunice became believers in Christ and then began to set an example for young Timothy. They were not only an example, but these verses also tell us that they gave Timothy early childhood training, early childhood training. Going back to chapter 3 and verse 15, it says that from childhood you have known the sacred writings. Now, what are the sacred writings? You know them. They're the scriptures, right? The scriptures of the Jews, what we call today the Old Testament. That's what he's primarily referring to there. So Timothy's faith training began early, even before they had heard about Jesus Christ. In fact, it began very early because that word for child there, brephos, means an infant or a tiny little child. For example, in Luke chapter 2 and verse 12, brephos is used to refer to the newborn baby Jesus. Eunice, following Lois's example from a previous generation, got started teaching the scriptures early to Timothy. Now you notice, and you might have been wondering, that we haven't even heard anything yet about Timothy's father. Did you notice that? So if you're a single mom, maybe this will appeal to you a little bit, because here's an example where a Christian mom didn't get any help from a Christian dad. That's because according to Acts chapter 16 and verse 1, Eunice's husband was a Greek, not a Jew, evidently, because he's never mentioned and didn't seem to have any influence, he was not a believer. He was disobedient to the word. 
But even with that handicap, Eunice did not let that slow her down. See, a lot of times we use the things that don't go well in our lives as excuses for not doing the right thing. But she didn't. She didn't have help. She was there doing it by herself. And she decided that didn't hinder her. She had the grace of God. She had faith. You could take that at any stage of life. And you, can, and you can bring the Word of God to your children. Now, she started early. I'm not trying to say that if you missed teaching your children early that now you should give up. Really, the Word of God and the grace of God can always overcome our sins, right? God's grace is always greater than our sin. We can never say it's too late. If your children are grown, you can still have an influence in their life. We still have the gift of intercessory prayer, yes? We still have the operation of the Holy Spirit, yes? These are powerful tools. But speaking to the younger women right now, how much joy you preserve for yourself and your children and your family if you start the training early and earnestly. And so the practice of mothering involves the example of a sincere faith, early childhood training, and thirdly, it involves enlightenment from the Scriptures. Go again to chapter 3 and verse 15. It says, you have known the sacred writings. By the way, that lets us know that the Bible can be known. The Bible's not hard to understand, right? There's a perspicuity to Scripture. It's clear. You have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. The Scriptures, in other words, enlighten with truth. The Scriptures brighten up the mind. They brighten up the thinking. They turn a light bulb on in the mind so that there's understanding of reality in God. That's what the Scriptures do. They flood your mind with truth. Truth is not inside of our children. We don't have our children born and given to us, and the truth is inside of them, and we somehow have to bring the truth out of them. That's Eastern religion. That's, that's not true because they don't have truth. They don't know what it is. So they call darkness light. The light is outside of the child. It's called revelation. It comes from the voice of God, and it has to find penetration into the mind and heart of the child. You say, that's hard. Yes, it's very hard, because there's foolishness that's bound up in the heart of a child, the Proverbs say, right? And it takes a lot of patience. You say, but I've told them 25,000 times. Then you'll need to tell them 25,001 times, and two times, and three times. And you'll need to find different ways to tell them. And you'll need to find ways to make the Scriptures more interesting. And you'll need to find teachable moments because that's your job. That's what you're supposed to do. The Scriptures enlighten. Christ is the light of the world and Christ speaks through Scripture. Ultimately, truth will not be found in places like this, educational halls. Truth will come via God's revelation, which comes through the mouth of prophets, which is now written and put to us in one book. It's called the Bible. So these women were busy teaching the Scriptures long before they even knew about Jesus. Remember, there was, a, there was a dispensational change. They're going from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, they're doing what they were supposed to be doing. They're teaching the Bible. Then comes the message of Christ. They believe it, and they teach the gospel right along with the other things that they learned. They taught Timothy about the promises of God given to Abraham and what they mean and how far-reaching they would be for the globe. They taught Timothy about Moses and the law of God and what true righteous living was like. They taught how to use the wisdom literature from Solomon to teach practical applications of God's law and will. They used the praise Psalter of David to inspire proper expression of, of hallelujahs and thanksgivings to Yahweh. You know, there probably was not a synagogue in that town of Lystra to instruct young Timothy. 
Because if there were, we would see that Paul, as an apostle, it was his habit to go to the synagogues first to make proclamation of Jesus. Remember, he said the gospel is to the Jew first and then to the Greek. So if there were a synagogue there, he would have showed up. He would have preached the gospel. There was nothing is mentioned there. And most of the crowd were Gentiles. We know that because in Lystra is the place where they thought that Paul and Barnabas were Zeus and Hermes, the gods that had come down from heaven. And they wanted to offer sacrifices to them. And Paul had wanted nothing to do with that. He tore his clothes and all. So, so there wasn't a big, even Jewish community there for them. And yet they stuck to teaching the Bible. They were earnest about teaching the scriptures to Timothy. Mothers, effective Bible teaching is more than reading the stories of the Bible. The Bible needs to be taught with passion. It needs to be taught with creativity. You need to make sure they understand and can kind of get into the shoes of the people in the Bible. Do you know how hard it was to stare down a nine-foot-plus giant and say, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have taunted, to charge that guy with a sling in his hands? Do they understand the kind of faith that takes? Or Daniel, the pressure to compromise, being thrown into the lion's den, much harder than going to the principal's office, you know? Teach them the scriptures with a view to developing vigorous faith, undying loyalty to the eternal God. This is literally the difference between life and death. No, I said that wrongly, between eternal life and eternal death. And we see next that the practice of mothering also involved enlisting the help of the church. This is so important, and, and sometimes mothers miss this. Enlisting the help of the church. We assume, again, Eunice's husband did not help with the training in the Lord. There wasn't much of a Jewish community there, no synagogue. When Paul came back to Lystra in his second missionary journey, after he planted the church in his first missionary journey, Eunice, with the approval of Lois, released Timothy to travel with the Apostle Paul and to learn the Christian faith more deeply, to learn how to serve in the church in leadership. She, as a believer in Christ, was humbled, and she understood that there was only so much that she could accomplish. There was only so much she could impart. Timothy also needed to receive training directly from the family of God and this also took faith and sacrifice on her part. I love this lady. What faith she exemplified. Because she knew the dangers that her son was going to face if he traveled with a man like Paul. She saw him stoned almost to death and dragged out of a city. Or at least she had heard of that. Would you release your son to travel with a guy like the Apostle Paul? Yet she takes her son, her precious son, and she, in a sense, gives her son to the church and says, train him. I want him to do the will of God. A grown child leaves the authority of parents to live under the authority of church leaders. Eunice understood this. Eunice was wise. And Eunice accepted the training and the authority of the church for her son. Parents, you should be preparing your children to leave your leadership and your home. That also is part of your goal, preparing them to leave, to be handed over to strong Bible-believing and gospel-preaching churches, to serve in those churches, some of them to become 
full-time workers, some of them to be called by God to be preachers and missionaries and pastors, but every last one of them to use their career, to use their occupation, not just to make money, but to find some significant way to advance the kingdom of God. That's the goal. Listen to this. The church is not here to serve whatever your family goals are. Your family is here to serve the goals that Jesus Christ has for His church. And our last significant question is, I hate it when I run out of time. What are the privileges of motherhood? Well, there are actually many privileges to motherhood. But I'm going to give you two. The first is esteem. Now, I know that might, some of you might chuckle with that, esteem and honor. Mother's Day is only one day out of 365, yes? What happens tomorrow and the next week? Are you really esteemed and honored? A lot of times, children are just plain disrespectful. And by the way, to any of the children, you need to honor your mom 365 days a year. You want me to say that again? I may maybe get more cookies from your moms out here if I say that again. You should be honoring your mother 365 days a year in the way you speak to her, in the way you speak about her to your friends, in the way you quickly do what she asked you to do even if you don't like it. You should honor her. So esteem is the first benefit of a mother. For Lois and Eunice, their esteem has been eternally preserved in the Bible. You are learning today about Eunice and Lois because their names are in the Bible. And God made sure these two ladies were honored and esteemed. They were not esteemed to some great business owner because they followed their career. They're not esteemed to some great land owners. Nothing wrong with women owning land. But it's not for that reason that they're being honored. They're being honored as wise and godly, a grandmother and a mother. They were successful in passing on their Jewish faith and the Christian faith to their son. Mother's Day was started as a religious holiday in the earlier part of the 20th century so that the work and the love of mothers would never be forgotten. I don't know what kind of people would forget their mothers in the first place, but it's still a good idea. Mothers deserve esteem, especially in their older years. When they served us when we were too young and too helpless to serve ourselves so we should serve them when they're too old to care for themselves. Motherhood is of much higher value than worldly achievement and it deserves higher honor than carnations and cards. God will honor godly mothers. If you're not honored in this world, you need to know that God takes note of every single time you lovingly and humbly and out of the limelight care for your children. God will honor that if it's done by faith in Jesus Christ. The second privilege is enduring influence. Enduring influence. Timothy was an encouragement to the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. I don't think... Most of you have any understanding how discouraging full-time ministry could be. I don't think I have any real understanding how discouraging the ministry could be at times to the Apostle Paul. 
a man who was shipwrecked and stoned and slandered and constantly opposed everywhere he went. In this young man, Paul received a tremendous amount of encouragement. Paul kept him as a companion in their second missionary journey through Macedonia where they planted the church at Philippi and the church at Thessalonica and Berea and Corinth. Paul appointed Timothy as the lead pastor of the large and very influential church at Ephesus. Paul wrote two letters to him that have been preserved in the New Testament under his name to instruct him and edify not only Timothy but countless young pastors all over the world. Timothy was so dear to Paul's heart that Paul writes of him in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17, I have sent to you Timothy who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord and he will remind you of all my ways which are in Christ Jesus. He trusted this man. Timothy is also the one to whom Paul wrote with emotion at the beginning of 2 Timothy that he longed to see Timothy so that he might be filled with joy. This man gave him joy. What career could have brought Eunice and Lois such enduring influence on their community and the entire world for generations to come more than the impact they had in what they did in mothering and grandmothering Timothy? I submit to you there's no business that they could have built that would have had any more, anywhere near as close impact as this. Herein we see the wisdom of throwing off the lies of modern feminism and embracing the unique value of the female role both in home and in church and seeing what legacy that God can make with your life. If you will trust him and obey him, he can use you powerfully, and I don't care what age you are, and I don't care what mistakes you've made up till now. God is greater than our hearts, and God is greater than our past sins. I just pray that in some way God will excite young mothers and older mothers here with the prospect of what your faith passed on to them can accomplish. Who knows where God will take them? Who knows who they will marry? Who knows what your grandchildren will be like? Who knows who they will lead to Christ as neighbors or in their occupation or as evangelists? Who knows? Trust God with it. And may he make all of us, male or female, married or unmarried, having children or no children, young or old, to be spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers, ladies who are older and you've been in the faith for a while, find somebody in this church who knows the faith less than you and start putting some time into their lives. Start giving of yourself. You say, I'm imperfect. Well, what, what mother is perfect? There are no perfect mothers. There are no perfect fathers except the one above. You take, I'll put it this way, God can take you with your imperfections and use that to help impart faith into the lives of others. Don't neglect the younger women in this church. Pour time into them and help them become the ladies and the women of God that God wants them to. Set the right example. Minister to their spiritual needs so the gospel might spread so Christ might be honored. That would be a great, great goal in life to have. 
And there's so much that can be said about spiritual mothering. I just want to say that the need for that is so great. All you need to do, again, is have that right example, pray and intercede for them, use the scriptures, trust God as you pour time into them. You can have an influence on them. You can rub off on them in the way that you just express yourself, the way you endure trials, the wisdom that you impart for situations you've been in. You need to be involved in their life, though. It's messy, it's hard, it's time-consuming, it's inconvenient, but it's very needed. And I just pray that God blesses all of our mothers and spiritual mothers this day. Father in heaven, thank you for this design that you've given of mothers who will commit themselves to follow you from their heart and spiritual moms that will pour time into those that are younger and need to hear truth and are opposed to truth and push people away who speak truth to them. We know so many people make excuses about people not speaking to them rightly or this or that because their hearts are cold and far away from you and they're self-justifying. Lord, give our older and more mature women stamina and strength and courage to press through all of that and speak to all of our younger ladies and younger men that need truth in their hearts. Father, use them as a great army of truth and use their prayers and their intercessions, God, Build their faith and help them to see the great value and great esteem that is in this role that you've given to them. We pray they all will sense that honor that comes from your throne above. For we've prayed it in the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.